Well, first of all, happy weather day. Today is a great day of weather. I think we can all rejoice. I was beginning to wonder if winter would never end. And it's, I've heard it's coming back, but nevertheless, we know that spring is going to come someday, so this is a good reminder of that. Uh, let me pray. Uh, Father, we ask for your blessing today. Uh, we are thankful for a day of good weather. Uh, we know that uh, even a day like today reminds us that you are far better to us than we deserve. Uh, we're also reminded that your mercy and your compassion is new every morning. Uh, you tell us in the scripture that the changing of seasons is a reminder to us of your faithfulness. And so uh, even though we know that it's still winter and, and winter will be here for a little bit longer, it's a reminder to us that you are faithful. And of course, we're reminded most of your faithfulness by the fact that you sent your son and that you say that if we put our faith in him, that we will be rescued. And so we're praying today as we look at this passage in Luke 16, that our hearts would be encouraged, they would be challenged, they would have a desire and an urgency to proclaim this message of Jesus Christ. Father, we love you and we pray that you bless our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. So in 2014, just last year, Lifeway Research, in conjunction with Ligonier Ministries, produced a survey simply entitled The State of Theology. The basic idea was they were trying to get an idea of the beliefs that Americans hold to. The results were predictable but troublesome. Uh, The general uh, consensus from the survey was simply this, that while Americans, generally speaking, hold to a, a belief in the Bible, or at least parts of it, that belief is fuzzy at best. For example... 70% of Americans say that they believe that there is one God in three persons. In other words, 70% of Americans say that they believe in the Trinity. But 64% would say that they believe the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. 19% believe that Jesus was the first created being. Both of the latter, just in case you're wondering, are completely at odds with Scripture. And so there's this confusion. People say they believe in the Trinity, but they don't really know what that means. The Trinity is not the only area, though. 53% of Americans say that salvation is found in Christ alone, but 71% say that you must contribute something to your own salvation, which contradicts the first statement. Uh, Americans believe, 48% believe that the Bible is the word of God, but only 43% would say that the Bible is accurate. 41% would say that the Bible is full of myths. 45% believe that the Bible is written for each person to interpret as they choose which roughly means that if you were to walk down the street, half of the people you run into would say, oh, the Bible is meant to be interpreted however you want it to be interpreted. Confusion abounds. There's confusion in the church also. 52% of Americans would say that worshiping with your family or at home alone is a perfectly acceptable replacement for actually going and gathering with the church. 56% believe that the pastor sermons have no authority. But most relevant for our passage today are the thoughts of Americans when it comes to heaven and hell. Most Americans believe that heaven and hell exist. 67% would say that heaven is real. 61% say they believe in hell. But it's not as if they're decisively convinced on this topic. 47% would say they strongly agree there's a heaven. 41% would say they strongly agree there's a hell. And certainly you go deeper into the topic, the more obvious it is that there's confusion. 45% of Americans say there's more than one way to get to heaven, which is completely at odds with John 14, 6. 30% of Americans think that you will have a chance to follow God after you die, which is completely at odds with today's passage. 67% of people feel that most people are good enough that they don't need to worry about hell at all. And only 18% would say that even the smallest sin is worthy of the wrath of God. Now, all that said, I don't think we need to go crazy in interpreting the results of this survey. Depending upon how they ask the questions, 
who they ask them to, when they ask them, survey results can be very, uh, very inaccurate at times. And so there's no sense in acting as if these are infallible results. As one of my friends used to say, 90% of all statistics are made up anyway. And I'm sure that statistic too is made up. I think it's fair to say, though, that even if you think that this survey result is inaccurate, or if you feel like, oh, maybe it's a little bit different than what the reality is, I think it's fair to say that there is confusion that abounds on these topics. There's confusion that abounds. People are uncertain of what they actually believe. And the fact is, we don't need a survey to tell us that. We don't need LifeWay research to tell us that people are confused about heaven and hell. Because we know from talking to people, we know from watching shows on television, we know from reading articles on the internet, that people are confused about what happens after death. In fact, that confusion is not just out there. It's not just with the culture at large. That confusion exists in the pews as well. And so the hope today is that we can clear up at least some of that confusion. More accurately, that this passage would clear up some of that confusion. Now, I will say this. I think that what we're doing does have authority. Maybe you heard earlier that 56% of Americans say that the pastor's sermon has no authority. But I would argue that what we're about to do does have authority, and it's not because of me. If you've ever met me or spent any time with me, you know that the authority does not exist in me. You know that I am messed up. But by God's grace, I've been redeemed, and hopefully he can use me. But this word has authority. The Word of God has authority. This is why every single week we open the Bible. Because you don't need to hear from me. You don't need just another voice. You need one voice. You need to hear from Him. And so the authority lies in this book. And so let me read here. And as I said last week, let's just come with an expectation. If we really believe that there's authority in this book, let's come with the expectation that this passage can change everything. So Luke 16, starting in verse 19. The parable that's known as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Verse 19 says this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, A great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into your place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, of all the parables, this one is unique. There's several things about this that make it unique. Most of Jesus' parables are earthly stories with a heavenly meaning, as we've said time and again. And so what that means is that Jesus takes everyday common occurrences 
and then he ties them to heavenly meanings. So for example, he tells the parable of the sower, where they're sowing seed in an agricultural society. This is something that they would commonly understand. Or the parable of the lost coin. Everyone can relate to someone losing something. But this one is unique in that it starts with an earthly story, but then it transitions to what happens after death. This is very unique amongst the parables. It's also unique in that this is the only place in Scripture in which the thoughts of the unconverted after death are reported for us. The other thing that makes it unique is that this is the only parable in which Jesus gives a name. Lazarus is the only person named in any of Jesus' parables. Now, lest you get confused here, this is not the same Lazarus that is later uh, raised from the dead by Jesus. Now, maybe it's a bit of irony that, uh, given the topic of this parable, that he does raise a man named Lazarus, but this is not the same Lazarus. As I said, there are a lot of things about this parable that make it unique and different than any other parable. I think for that reason, I've always been intrigued by this parable. It's so different than everything else, and it addresses a topic that I know we all wonder about. What will life be like after we die? In fact, even going back to the time before I was a believer, this was a question I was wondering about. What will happen to me if I die? In fact, I remember when I was a non-believer being frightened by this question. And so for all those reasons, I think this parable has the ability to keep our attention. But of course, the goal here is not just to keep our attention. Jesus doesn't tell us parables just to entertain us. Right? He's trying to teach us something through this parable. And so the question is, what is he trying to teach us. Well, I think the overarching principle that we can say is simply this, the reality of the eternal destiny that awaits us. So let's backtrack here a little bit. The parable opens up in this way in verse 19. There's a rich man who is clothed in purple and in fine linen. Now purple at the time was the color of the rich. It was the color of those who were in royalty. It was extraordinarily difficult to get a dye that was purple. And so only those who were really rich or those who were in a position of royalty would wear purple. In addition, we're told that he's wearing fine linen. It's actually, if you translate the Greek there, it's fine undergarments. In other words, this guy has a lot of money. He's wearing purple, and he has really fancy and expensive underwear. On top of that, he is feasting sumptuously every day. I mean, this guy is living the life, right? He is wearing what he wants to wear. He is eating what he wants to eat. He is doing what he wants to do. In stark contrast, we find a man named Lazarus. In many ways, Lazarus' life is the exact opposite of the rich man. We're told that he is poor, that he is carried and brought to the gate of the rich man, which implies that maybe he has a physical disability, perhaps he has a disease, maybe he has some injury, but whatever the case is, he's probably unable to move himself. And he is hungry. He longs, we're told, he longs for the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. We're left with the impression that he doesn't get any. On top of that, he has sores. And to make matters worse, the wild dogs are coming and licking the man's sores. Now, for those of you who are dog lovers, maybe you're under the impression here, maybe you have this idea that this is a gentle scene, right? that these are little puppies coming and they're licking his sores and tending to him. All the other people have left him and these puppies are coming along. Now, that's not what's happening here. Understand, that's not what Jesus is saying. Dogs in this culture to be doing this type of thing would be wild dogs. And they would have the reputation of being mean and nasty and dirty. And so what's happening when these dogs are coming and licking his sores is not that they're tending to his needs. It's that they're pestering, right? That they're spreading his infection. 
And on top of that, they're making him ceremonially unclean. In a word, if we had to describe Lazarus' life, we would say it is pitiful. It's pitiful. He has no money. He has no food. He has no way to be able to get around. He's not able to be left alone by these dogs. It is a pitiful existence. And when you compare it to the rich man, it seems even more pitiful. The rich man has more money than he knows what to do. He buys exquisite clothing. He dines on the finest food. He is living the life of luxury. Surely, if someone is blessed in this story, you would say it's the rich man. If I were to ask you, which would you rather be? If I were to give you two options. Option A is that you can be rich beyond your imagination. That you can live in the nicest house and you can eat the finest foods and you can have the best clothes and even the fanciest underwear. Or option B is that you can be poor to the point that you have no food to eat. You can have sores all over. You can be attacked by wild dogs and you have to be carried from place to place. Which would you choose? Well, it's a no-brainer, right? Everyone would choose option A. It seems obvious. But given how the rest of the parable unfolds, maybe it shouldn't be so obvious to us. Because by the end of the parable, we've come to the conclusion that maybe Lazarus is not as poor and pitiful as we thought. And maybe it's actually the rich man who is poor and pitiful. Because there is a gigantic reversal that comes in this parable. In fact, look what happens starting in verse 22. Uh, Verse 22 says this, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So Lazarus dies, we're told in verse 22, and he's carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Now, Abraham is likely mentioned here because he's the patriarch of the Jewish faith. In Genesis 12, 3, the promise is made to Abraham that through him, all the descendants of the nations will be blessed. This is a promise that comes to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Abraham is mentioned here because everyone would associate Abraham with being in paradise or being in heaven. And so the fact that he's at Abraham's side is just a way of telling us that this poor man is now in heaven or he is now in paradise. We're told here that Lazarus died and he's immediately carried. There's no mention of his burial. That's in stark contrast to the rich man. The rich man, we're told, is dead and he's buried. This is likely a reminder to us that given the way he lived, he probably had a luxurious funeral. He probably had a really fancy celebration in his death, right? The poor man gets nothing. The rich man has this fancy burial. And yet, we're told that the rich man does not go to Abraham's side. Instead, the rich man goes to Hades. Hades is the place of punishment, another way of saying hell. And let me pause for a second and maybe explain something that you may have wondered about before. It's likely that this is happening in the intermediate state. So let me explain what I mean by that. This is happening in the period between the rich man and Lazarus's death and the period between when Jesus returns. 
for the final judgment. Scripture seems to teach that after we die, we will immediately enter into a state of blessing or punishment. Heaven or hell, if you will. But it's not until Christ returns that our bodies will be resurrected and we will face the final judgment. At which point then we will be sent to our final destiny, the new heaven and new earth, or the everlasting place of torment and punish. It seems that the rich men and Lazarus are in that intermediate state. They're already dead, but they have not yet faced the final judgment. However, they're already experiencing either the blessing in the case of Lazarus or the punishment in the case of the rich man that will characterize all of their eternity. And so all of that said, hopefully that clears up for you. What, what is, if we die, what happens to us? Well, immediately we go into the presence of the blessing or punishment that we'll face for eternity, but it's not until the resurrection or until Jesus returns that our bodies are resurrected that we will wait the final judgment. All that said, the rich man is in Hades. And Hades is obviously a terrible place. It is a place of torment, we're told. And while he's in this place of torment, the rich man looks up and he sees Abraham with Lazarus at his side. And so he calls out to Abraham and he asks, can Lazarus bring me a drop of water? Now it's interesting that multiple places in this parable, the rich man seems to be telling Lazarus what he wants him to do. It's as if he thinks he's still on earth and he can make Lazarus do whatever he wants. At least twice he tells Abraham, tell Lazarus to do this, as if he's completely clueless that things are no longer the way that they used to be. But he calls out and he says, tell Lazarus to bring me a drop of water. Now this is rich in irony. right? Remember when they were on earth, that Lazarus is at the rich man's gate and he's asking for a drop or a, a breadcrumb. He's asking for crumbs from the rich man's table. And now, on the other side of death, the rich man is asking for a drop of water. You see the irony? The tables have been completely turned. And that's exactly the point that Abraham makes in his response. He points out that on earth, the rich man had all of the good things. Lazarus had nothing. But Abraham says the tables have now been reversed, which is exactly why some call this a parable of reversal. At any rate, Abraham says there is no way that Lazarus can bring you a drop of water. It would not be proper. And besides, it's impossible because there is a chasm that is fixed between the two places. Now, here's the challenge that we face with this parable. Here's the challenge we face. Because it's a parable, we're uncertain how far we are to press the details. We're uncertain, for example... Can people really see from hell into heaven? Or can people really communicate from hell to heaven? On the one hand, we have to be careful. Jesus is trying to teach us something about eternity here. But we also don't want to press the point too far because it is a parable. And so we shouldn't think that everything that is said here is meant to be a one-to-one representation of what it will be like after we die. Commentator Daryl Box says this, details about the afterlife, let me pause here just for a second. I read an article several years ago that said it's probably not the most helpful thing to call it the afterlife, because that implies that real life is here, and that what comes after is just the afterlife. It's probably more accurate to call what happens here pre-life, and that is real life. But nevertheless, we'll just accept his definition, okay? Uh, He says, details about the afterlife are graphic portrayals, in this parable, are graphic portrayals, not necessarily actual descriptions of the afterlife. He continues, this parable is graphic and pictorial and reflects a reality rather than describing it literally. So let me just make a parenthetical side note here. Uh, Oftentimes I've been asked, do you take the Bible literally? 
That's a little bit of a confusing question, right? I think I know what people mean. I think, I, I think what they mean by that is, do you think that the Bible is truthful? Can you believe the Bible? But it's a little bit confusing when people say, should we take the Bible literally? Because the Bible itself isn't always meant to be taken literally. Let me give you an example. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Or if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So does Jesus mean that if you look lustfully at a person, your right eye causes you to sin, does he literally mean you should gouge out your eye? I think you should be thankful to know, no, I don't think that's what he means at all. He's using a figure of speech. And so uh, there's multiple other places in the Bible where we would say, yeah, we don't take the Bible literally because it's not meant to be taken literally. I think this is possibly one of those other places. So can people see from hell into heaven? Can people speak from hell to people in heaven? Well, I tend to think that those are just functions of the parable, that Jesus is trying to communicate a point. The fact is, we don't know for sure. But that said, I think there are several things that Jesus is trying to clearly communicate in this passage. With the first being the overarching point that I made earlier, that there is an eternal destiny that awaits all of us. Listen, there is no way of getting around the fact that the Bible consistently teaches that there is something that will come after we die. Hebrews 9.27, just as man is destined to die once and after that comes judgment. Matthew 25.46 speaks of the wicked going to eternal punishment, but the righteous going to eternal life. John 5, the passage that Kathy read earlier, the same thinking. Romans 2 talks about the fact that those who obey or those who know God will be given life. Those who do not will receive the wrath of God. 2 Thessalonians 1 says that those who disobeyed, those who have not received Christ, will have an eternal punishment that will, waste, that will await them, an eternal torment. And there are many other scriptures we could point to to say, the scripture is clear. This life is not it. There is more to come. There is more to come. Listen, the reality for every person in this room, without exception, is that one day you will die, and after that will come judgment. And there will be an eternal destiny that awaits And whether you choose to acknowledge that reality or not is completely unrelated to the fact of whether or not it's true. Uh, uh, Brian Lee sent me an article a few weeks ago with an analogy that basically went like this. The analogy, if I remember correctly, was that there are two twins who are in a womb. And one of them is convinced that there's life after the womb. And the other one's convinced that there's not. With the point being that it really doesn't matter whether the one twin thought there was life after the womb or not. There was. Now, there's all kinds of ways that analogy could fall apart. But the point is this, that whether you think there is something after this or not is irrelevant to the fact that there is. Because there is. The Bible is clear on this. If we believe this is the Word of God, then without hesitation, we must say that there is an eternal destiny that awaits all of us. The Bible is clear on this. It's inarguable. Now, again, we don't want to press the parable too far here and make it say things that it's not saying, but I think there are some clear things we can learn about that eternal destiny that waits us. One is this, that there will be no crossing over from heaven to hell or vice versa. This is the exact point I think he's trying to make in verse 26. Verse 26, he says this, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Listen, the fact is that how you respond to the message of the gospel now 
will have effects for all of eternity. You will not get a second chance after death. There is no crossing over. Hebrews 9, again, just as man is destined to die once and after that comes judgment. There will not be another chance. When I was in student ministry, I I would frequently be pleading with students to live for Christ. And the response I would often hear is this. They would say, well, when I get older, then I will live for Christ. Right now, I just want to enjoy I just want to enjoy life. But when I get older and have kids and all that, then I'll get serious about Christ. I mean, that's crazy. If what we're talking about here is true, that's crazy. Let me give you an analogy, okay? I know that we have several uh, med school students here. I know we have several who have graduated from med school. And so let me give it a med school analogy. And let me just preface this analogy by saying this. If I butcher this, I'm sorry, med school students. All right, You can correct me afterwards. And even if you're not a med school student, I hope that this will connect with you. But let's imagine that you're a med school student and you have a gigantic test coming up. The way I understand medical school is you just take tests all the time. But let's just, let's just say that you have a gigantic one. It's one of the big ones. I think the big ones are board exams. This is the part where I'm a little unsure about the terminology, but I hope that's correct, okay? So you have a huge board exam coming up, and this is one that you can't just study for for a few weeks. You have to study for months, right? This is going to be a five- or six-month process. And so you start diving in and you start studying. Now, you notice that your roommate, who is also one of your good friends, isn't studying at all. They're not doing anything. And so at some point you say, hey, why are you not studying for the test? And they're like, well, listen. They say, I just want to enjoy medical school. I just want to enjoy my friends. I just want to enjoy being here. I just want to enjoy the process, the studying. I'm, I'm not going to worry about that right now. And maybe later I'll get to it. And so at first, maybe you're not overly worried. Maybe you think they're just a procrastinator. But as the months go by... As the test gets closer, you start to notice that they're still not studying. At some level now, your, your, your concern has started to heighten a little bit, and you're wondering what in the world is going on. In fact, while at first you may have admired, even been jealous of their lack of studying and thought, you know, maybe they're on to something. Maybe I should be doing this too. At a certain point, it would shift to the reality that this person is just a fool. They're just a fool. I could be wrong here. From an outsider's perspective, it seems like studying is an intricate part of medical school. In fact, it seems like that's all you have time for. So to neglect that and to pretend like you don't need to study seems not only crazy and not only foolish, it seems extraordinarily short-sighted. And at some level, it seems like you're missing the whole point of medical school. Right? The reason you're going is to learn information. And so if you just decide, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy medical school I'm not going to study. You're missing the point. But let me say this. As crazy and as foolish as that seems, is it really any less foolish to put off living for Christ? Especially to carry the analogy a step further when we don't know what day the test will come. Because death is uncertain. We don't know what day it will come. One thing that has been surprising to me, I've been in ministry now for for 12 years, two years in campus ministry, I volunteered for three years, then five years as student minister, two years here. One thing that's been surprising to me, especially as I've been in the church and I've done ministry, is how, and I'll say this too humbling, is how quickly death comes. It's, it's amazing to me. Uh, I don't know if I, I always had this impression that you'd just see death coming, that you'd see sick people, and then you'd realize you'd have this time where you'd be able to adjust. And sometimes it works like that. Certainly there have been many times uh, the church I was at in Amarillo was sizable, and we had many old people, and so there were times where they would have sicknesses or illnesses, and you could see the health deteriorating over a period of time, and you saw it coming. But there were many other times 
where death came completely unexpectedly. That one week, someone was completely healthy, and the next week, they were dead. Or one night, someone went to bed, and the next morning, they didn't wake up. And sometimes this was with older people, sometimes this is with younger people. The fact is, there is no guarantee for not any person in this room. No person in this room can guarantee, I will be here tomorrow. No person can guarantee that. I think we all know this from experience. And if that's true, then it makes zero sense to say, oh, I'll just live for God later. Or I'll get more serious about my relationship with Christ later. If this parable is true, if Jesus is hinting at some realities of what the life after will be like, then that makes zero sense. To say, I'll just get serious about it later because we don't know. We don't know. And that becomes even more important in light of the next thing we see in this parable. And that's simply this, that hell will be terrible. Verses 23 and 24. Verse 23 says this, In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now, will hell be exactly like this? Again, we don't know. But I think the point that the parable is trying to make here is that hell will be terrible. Commentator Terry Johnson says this, What is clear is that the inhabitants of hell long for the slightest relief, even for the briefest moment. Now, let me be clear here. Every person who is in hell will deserve to be there. And they will deserve to be there because of the rebellion against the rule of God. They will deserve to be there because they've rebelled against God's kindness. They will deserve, their be, they will deserve to be there because they've hated God and hated this kingdom. That describes all of us apart from Christ, by the way. But while that's true, that doesn't change the fact that hell is terrible. And I just want you to know that I take no delight in talking about this. <clears throat> in fact, uh, as I've ran over this message and, and this practice several times, every time I talk about this, it grieves me to know that there are certain people that I love and that I care about that might be headed towards this destiny. And so I get no pleasure There's no twisted pleasure in me talking about this. My heart has been heavy every time I've thought about this this week. There are people that I love that unless something changes are headed towards this course. So I'm not taking any pleasure in talking about this. And if it wasn't true, I wouldn't be telling you. But I believe it's true because this is what the word teaches. And this is the reality that we have to face. That there is an eternal destiny that awaits all of us. And for those who do not know Christ, that destiny is hell. For those who have not received forgiveness of sins, that destiny is hell. So I just want to plead with you. I I know I do this on a regular basis, but I just want to appeal to you if you're here today and you don't know Christ, do not wait. Do not wait. Even if you're skeptical about what this teaches, if there's a possibility that this might be true, then you owe it to yourself to dive in and to study this as much as you can and figure out, is this true? And I'm convinced 100% this is true. I know this too, that there is hope that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus came and paid the punishment for sin that we deserve to pay. The punishment that the rich man is paying in this parable, Jesus is willing to pay for us. The wrath of God that is being poured out on the rich man, Jesus took on the cross. If only you will repent of your sins and trust Christ. And so listen, I'm begging of you, whether you are 12 or whether you are 70, do not wait. Repent of your sins and trust Christ. 
John 3.36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God is hanging over all of us. Now Jesus took the wrath for us, but if you have not repented of your sins and trusted him, that wrath still remains on you. And so I'm pleading with you, turn to Christ. So that's, that's overarching point number one, albeit with several subpoints, that an eternal destiny that awaits all of us. Here's the thing I would say in response to that, that the eternal destiny that awaits all of us should affect the way we live now. It should affect the way we live on this earth. I think that's clearly one of the points Jesus is trying to make in this parable. He's trying to say, if this is true, then you should live differently. He's trying to help us see that the way the rich man lives in this parable makes no sense in light of eternity. Now maybe, if it was just for this life, his luxury and food choices, his luxury and his clothing choices, the way he lived without any regard for other people, maybe if it was only for this life, it would make sense. But it was not just for this life. There was an eternity to come. And that's the mistake the rich man makes. And clearly that has application for us. Let me ask a simple question. Are you living today as if there's an eternity still to come? Now the context of Luke 16 is actually, if you go back and look at the parables previous to it, is largely centered around wealth. And so let me ask a specific question as it relates to what I think uh, and why Jesus picks the rich man here. Are you using your wealth, are you using your money like there's an eternity still to come? Now, here's the thing, I think, uh, how we kind of approach money sometimes. We, we just want a checklist. Tell me what I can and cannot do. We just wish that Jesus would say to us, you should spend your money on this or not on this. But if, if that was the case, we would be completely missing the point. The point is not a checklist. The point is to have a heart that loves people and loves God. And the way that we spend our money, the way that we spend our time, the way that we use our gifts, all of that reflects that we love God and love people and we know that there's an eternity still to come. Clearly the rich man's problem in this particular parable is that he does not care about people and he does not care about God. He only cares about his pleasure, his food, his clothes, his fancy underwear. That's all he cares about. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's kind of funny to think about the fact that he has these really expensive underwear, but I think that Jesus is actually trying to teach us this is how foolish he is. There is someone who is starving at his gates, and he's more concerned about his undergarments than he is about this person who is being pestered by dogs and has nothing to eat. But I wonder, how often do we live in the same way? Now, to be clear, the issue here is not wealth. It's not sinful that this rich man is wealthy. No, the issue is that he's not using it to love people and to love God. So listen, we're not going to go through a list of things today that you should or shouldn't do with your money. That would be missing the point. But I think we can ask this. Are we using our money to advance the kingdom? Are we using our money to love people? Are there any Lazaruses, proverbial Lazaruses, who are at your gate? And are you doing anything to care for them? Are you building up comfort in this life only to face anguish in the next? Or do you realize that everything you have was given to you by God? And do you realize that eternity is still to come? Are you living, not just with your money, but with your time, with the gifts that you have, are you living in a way that reflects that eternity is still to come?
I would suggest that we should not put off answering that question. And here's why. Because there is an urgency to the situation. And that's the last thing I want you to see in this parable. Look at verses 26 to 31. All right, check this out. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he, the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into the place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, I don't know that we always understand the urgency of eternity. Because of the age of skepticism that we're in, we may say we believe that there's a heaven or hell, but we frequently live like that's not true. But on the other side of death, the rich man is all too aware of the urgency of the situation. He had none of that urgency while he was on earth. But on the other side, he realizes how urgent the situation is. And so he begs Abraham, again, he says, send Lazarus. It's another reminder to us that he really doesn't understand how things work. He says, send Lazarus to warn my five brothers. He's convinced that if someone comes back from the dead, his five brothers will repent of the error of their ways. Now, this is, this is kind of an interesting thing, right? He says, if someone comes back from the dead, then they will believe. And maybe, maybe we're skeptical or maybe we're scoffing like, oh, what a silly thing to say. But I wonder, are we really all that different? I wonder if you've ever wondered before, if, if I would just see someone raised from the dead, then I would really believe that the Bible's true. Or if, if somehow God would just answer more of my prayers, then I would know that I should live for him. Or if I could just see Jesus face to face, then I would be more passionate about living for him. I wonder if we have the same attitude as this guy. But the response that Abraham gives is really telling. Again, look at what he says in verse 28. Five, five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And again, he says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He says the same thing again. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, what is he talking about here? Are Moses and the prophets wandering around? That's not what he's talking about. He's saying the scripture. Moses and the prophets is another way of saying the Old Testament scriptures. And what Abraham is clear in saying is, if they do not believe the scripture, then they will not believe if a rich man comes back from the dead. It seems likely to us that these five brothers are living the same way the rich man was. They're living in luxury. They're living with all their fancy clothes and food. They're not living for others. And so this rich man is convinced if someone can just come back from the dead, then they will believe. But the point Abraham makes is they don't need a person to come back from the dead because they have the scripture. And the scripture clearly teaches that you should love God and you should love others. The rich man gets the urgency of the situation. He understands how serious it is for his brothers. He just doesn't understand that the answer is right before his brothers' faces. The answer is found in scripture. Now, this parable that Jesus is telling becomes even more interesting in light of what Jesus says in Luke chapter 24. All right, so uh, flip ahead just eight chapters here to Luke 24. All right, so this idea that Moses and the prophets are the key to life becomes even more interesting in light of what Jesus says in Luke 24, starting in verse 25. All right, so Luke 24, verse 25 says this. 
And he said to them, this is Jesus talking, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now listen carefully to verse 27 and see if it reminds you of anything in Luke 16. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now verses 44 and 45, the same chapter. Then he said to them, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In other words, all of scripture, Moses and the prophets, is pointing to Jesus. And so when Jesus says here, and he's quoting Abraham in the parable, when he says that if they would just turn to the scriptures, he's also saying if they would just turn to me. John 5 actually says the same thing. John 5, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, that you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Abraham is clear here. He's saying all your brothers need is the scripture. Now, whether they respond, that's a different issue, but they have all that they need. Now, the rich man, understand this, he knows the urgency of the situation. He knows how terrible hell is. He knows that hell is a reality. Maybe his brothers, like him, scoffed at the idea that there was an eternity still to come. But he knows on this side of death that hell is a reality. And so he wants his brothers to be spared. He just doesn't understand that they have all they need. They need the scriptures. What he wants is for a dead person to come back, which is ironic because Jesus would come back from the dead, and yet still many would not believe him. We have all we need, and it's in the scriptures. Now I think there's some huge implications for us. Listen, if the message of this book, and and we now have not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament. If the message of this book is what people need to be spared from hell, and I think that's what's being taught here in Luke 16. All they need are Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament. On top of the Old Testament, we also have the New Testament. But if the message of this book is all that people need to be spared from hell, will we present this message to others? Will we figure out ways to communicate the truths of this book to a dying world that needs to hear the message? Listen, in the course of the time that we are gathered here today, who knows how many people have driven by on the street that have no clue who Jesus is. And this parable would say that they are headed towards a destiny of hell. And will we stand here and do nothing? Knowing that, uh, I've I've heard um, a pastor told me that in Westchester County, less than 2% of the people attend church on an average Sunday. So even if we were just to assume that every person who attended church was a Christian, which is a really big assumption to make, but even if we were just to assume that, that means 98% of the people likely have no clue who Jesus is. Or they may know something of him, but they don't know the message of salvation. Will we figure out a way to get the message of this book to them? Will we be so familiar with the message ourselves that it just falls off our lips wherever we go? Will we be courageous enough to ask people if they will study the message with us? Will we be wise enough to realize that the task cannot wait? Listen, here's the really scary thing about this parable. Here's the really scary thing about this parable. The rich man in this story, his story might be the story of one of your relatives. It might be the story of one of your friends. It might be some of your stories. 
question is, will we do something about it before it's too late? Now hear me. There's always a danger here that we can be motivated by guilt in this. And that we can be motivated by fear. We should be motivated by joy. We have the greatest message there ever is. We have the only hope that's offered in the world. We shouldn't need to feel guilt. We shouldn't need to feel fear. Instead, we should feel a joy that we get to be the bearer of good news. If you've ever had the opportunity to break good news to a person, I would think that you enjoy it. How much more should we enjoy breaking this news to the world around us? We have the best news there is. Will we share this news before it's too late? Will we explain how Christ is the hope? Will we point people to the scripture and say, this is the story of scripture that yes, we have rebelled against God, but there is hope found in Jesus Christ? Or will we act like the majority of Americans who don't really believe that there's a heaven and a hell? Now here's the difference, I would hope, between the respondents on that survey and us. We know that there's heaven and hell. Because the Bible tells us so. And so I hope that we would live accordingly. I would hope that we would prioritize our lives in light of the eternity that's still to come. I would hope that we would prioritize the message of this book in light of the eternity that's still to come. And I would hope that we would take great joy in being able to share this message with others. We have the greatest message there is. Oh yeah, there's a reality of eternity that's coming. But there is hope. And is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's live for that message. And if needed, let's die for that message. Let's pray. God, we know this is not an easy passage in many ways. It's not an easy passage. But we pray that we would embrace the truths found in this scripture that we would not run from them because they're hard, that we would not pretend they don't exist because it's hard, but rather that we would say we believe this is true, and more than anything, we want people to hear about your Son. Father, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.